Today, we continue a series of discussions about the basics of Marxism, a method for understanding and changing the world used by many of the great revolutionaries of modern history. We'll discuss the Marxist understanding of the role played by stock markets in capitalism. How has the function of stock markets evolved over the years, and how do they contribute to today's exploding wealth inequality? We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Deepening unemployment, a looming wave of evictions, massive and widening inequality. There's no denying it, capitalism is in crisis and capitalism is the crisis. We are very excited to have Professor Richard Wolff join us for a regular weekly segment where we discuss the biggest stories relating to the economy, the state of the working class, and the crimes of big business. The Socialist Program brings you content three days a week thanks to the support of our patrons at patreon.com slash the socialist program. We appreciate all of your support and encourage you to become a patron today if you enjoy listening to the show. Richard Wolff is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work and the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from the Pandemics or Itself. You can check out his work at rdwolf.com. I'm Walter Smolarik, filling in for Brian Becker, who's out this week to attend the funeral of our dear friend, Abdus Lukman. Abdus was a committed fighter for social justice and an insightful voice in people's alternative media as part of Lukman Nation. All of us at the Socialist Program extend our heartfelt condolences to his beloved wife and comrade, Jackie Lukman. Professor Wolf, let's turn to this topic of the stock market. The very first stock market was formed in 1602 in the Netherlands, in Amsterdam, at the very dawn of the capitalist mode of production, the capitalist system, or perhaps maybe even the sort of primordial stage leading up to the formation of the capitalist system as we know it today. But of course, today, in modern day US capitalism and other advanced capitalist countries like the UK, France, Germany, the stock market really reigns supreme. And that's true, especially of Wall Street here in the United States. How did this happen? I mean, how did the role of stock markets evolve from being something that was auxiliary to the capitalist mode of production to something that's so central? Well, I think the best way to get into this is through history. And I'm glad you started by taking us back to the Netherlands centuries ago. First of all, the stock market is a capitalist invention. And the word capitalist is based on the word capital. And basically what stock markets have always done is served as a vehicle, a way for capitalists, that is employers who go out and hire workers to make things, it's a way for the employer to gather more resources into his or her hands. Stock markets start when a capitalist who's making a good business, perhaps with his wife or her husband or whoever, 
starting a business, building it perhaps, but very soon getting to a point familiar to almost all capitalists where in order to survive competitively, in order to grow, in order to make big profits, they need more capital than they themselves can put into play. And so the question immediately becomes, how am I going to get the more money I need to realize this opportunity to survive, to grow? Well, one of the ways that everyone is familiar with is you can go to a bank or any other lender and you can borrow it. And that's what capitalists often did. Often before there were stock markets, that was pretty much the only way to do it. But pretty soon they needed more money and they weren't too thrilled with the banks because the banks didn't just give them the money they wanted to borrow, but obviously the bank wants the money back. It's a loan. The bank wants to be paid interest while the loan is outstanding. And finally, to make sure that they can be sure the money is repaid and the interest is paid, banks demand knowledge about and even participation in what the capitalist is doing. They simply don't trust the capitalists, and there's good reason historically why they wouldn't. And so the poor capitalist who needs the extra money has to give up some control, has to give that money back, has to pay interest. So capitalists were always on the lookout. Is there some way for me to build my business when I don't have enough money to do it and I don't want to go to a bank or at least I don't want to go to a bank for all that I need? And now enter the stock market. The companies decided here's a way for us to get more money. Let us issue partial ownership of the company. We'll issue a little piece of paper called a stock or a stock certificate or a share in the company. They all mean the same. And this piece of paper we will give to anybody who, quote unquote, invests in our company. In other words, you give us your money and we'll give you a piece of paper declaring that you are an owner of so and so much of a proportion of this company. Now, clearly the people who issue the stock want to avoid what they had with the banks. So they rarely give the people they sell shares to very much control. And here's what they don't have to do. They don't have to pay them back. When you buy a share of stock, you take the risk. The only way you can cash that thing in is if you can persuade somebody else to buy it. But the people who issue the stock, they get your money, you get a piece of paper, they have no obligation to repay you ever. Likewise, they have no obligation at all to pay you interest. There is no interest typically on a share of stock. If the company wants to encourage people to buy shares of its stock that it issues, it can offer to give them a cut of the profits. That's called a dividend. When a company takes a portion of its profits, 
pays them out to the shareholders, people who've bought those pieces of paper, then that share, that payout, is called a dividend paid to the shareholder. This turned out to be genius. In other words, all kinds of people in society saw this as an interesting way to put to use whatever savings they had, whatever money they didn't need for their own activity could be invested in these companies issuing shares. So the companies got money without the intrusion of the bank and people around, particularly, of course, wealthy people, had a new opportunity to invest. And now why would they? Well, if you understand the logic here, there are really only two reasons. Either they were interested in getting those dividend payments. In other words, they bought a share of stock because it gave them a piece of the profits. But as I'll explain in a minute, that's usually not the major reason. Here's the big reason. The hope of the investor is that he or she will be able five months from now, five years from now, to sell that share to some other investor at a higher price than the original investor paid for it. The difference, by the way, if you're able to do that, the difference between what you paid for the share and what you were able to sell it for, that's called a capital gain. That's what is the major driver of investors in shares. They hope that by giving this company some of their money, getting some of the shares, that they will have lucked into, and boy, is there a lot of luck here, lucked into a company that will grow, in part because it's issuing shares. And as it grows, and as it becomes more successful, and as it becomes better known, they will, in fact, they hope, be able to sell it at a higher price, to realize a capital gain, which is the language in which all of this is done. So now quickly think of it on a global basis. If you're a company here in the United States, General Motors, and you want to build a new kind of car, let's say an electric one, and you don't have enough money, even though you're a rich company, you issue shares. And all around the world, there are people who've heard of General Motors, who think it's a good company, who think it's going to grow, who suspect that the United States government is in its pocket, and so forth and so forth. Then you get a situation in which the rich of the world buy shares in General Motors, which they can either do through their own stock market in the country where they reside, or they can directly invest here in the United States in the Dow Jones market, New York Stock Exchange, where they can buy those shares for themselves that way. Last point to make, like all developments of capitalism, it begins as a servant of capitalism. That's what stock markets were. Issuing stock, having a market where you can buy and sell the stock, which is all stock market means, so that you can buy now a share and sell it hopefully for more later. Having companies know they can dump shares into a market where there will be people who will buy them. 
This was a institution to give money to capitalists, a servant institution, a subordinate servant institution. And the capitalists arranged it that way. For example, you got only as many votes about what the company is going to do as a part owner as you had shares. If you had bought three shares, you have three votes. If you had bought 3,000 shares, then you have 3,000 votes. No democracy here, no ruling one person, one vote, never, never, never. Only the very richest people who had large amounts of shares would be in a position to have any real influence on the company. Moreover, remember those dividends? Well, those are at the pleasure of the company. It can decide to stop paying them, and there's nothing that the shareholder can do. That decision is made by the board of directors of the company. And how do you get on the board of directors? An institution of usually 10 to 20 people, no matter how big the company. You get elected by the shareholders. That's right. The people who own the shares elect the people on the board of directors who make all the decisions, including whether or not any dividends are going to be paid. And now here's the key statistic to understand it today. The 10% richest people in the United States own 80% of the shares. In other words, it's the top 1% to 10%, varying from country to country, who call the shots. By owning the shares, they elect the boards of directors, who in turn decide everything that happens in corporate America, and that's the dominant sector of our economy. Final, final point. Stock markets become no longer over time the servant, but they strive to become the master, which is a characteristic of all servants in all systems of servitude. And so what happens after a while is that big wealthy interests banks, big corporations themselves, insurance companies who gather all the premiums we pay to them. They come in and they buy and sell shares. They could care less about the underlying economy. They often buy and sell the same shares within an hour, within a day, using massive amounts of money to play, to game the system. That's why the stock market bounces up and down, often with very little relationship to what the underlying economy is, because it's become a casino, a gambling place where the folks with the money buy and sell shares to make a quick buck and often do it in ways that crashes, destabilizes the whole rest of the economy. The worst one was in 1929 you'll notice that the worst crashes of capitalism are always announced by a stock market dive because that's where the gamblers are the most sensitive, smell it coming, panic, don't want to get caught with those shares when the underlying company goes belly up. So they sell and that then becomes the very act that provokes what the fear was all along might happen. So it started to help capitalism, it still does, but at the same time, it threatens capitalism because it introduces a whole new level of uncertainty, of volatility, 
and of instability. Part of the reason we have crashes every four to seven years is because of the institution of the stock market, which has a regular pattern of getting overexcited in good years. Everybody's buying shares. But then when the economy has a rough time, everybody wants to unload the shares. So you can think of it as the up and down of the market is a kind of exaggerated reflection of the underlying capitalist economy. Anyway, that's the basic history of it. And I think what it does is helps you understand that it's the gathering place for the very rich. The biggest companies want to get capital and the richest people want to provide the capital in such a way that they'll get even richer. And so, for example, over the last 12, 14 months of this horrible coincidence in time and place of one of the worst crashes of capitalism and one of the worst public health calamities of capitalism happening in our country at the same time, what you had was terrible suffering, half of our working class losing its job for at least part of the time. But in the world of the stock market, everything was much, much better. People in the stock market made money, became richer over the last 16 months, even as Americans as a whole became poorer, suffered a great deal. And I'm not even talking about those who got sick or died from COVID. But the billionaires got richer. 650 billionaires got richer by almost $2 trillion. And most of that was the stock market. Because all the money being pumped in by the Federal Reserve, all that money went into the stock market, which is where rich people take their money. And they bought shares and sold them to each other, driving up the price. So all of their holdings at a higher price per share became more and more valuable. So literally, when the country was in serious crisis, life and death crisis, the rich got much richer and everybody else paid for it. And one key institution, not the only one, but one in key institution making all that possible is the stock exchange. Yeah, thank you very much, Professor Wolf, for that explanation. So, so important. I want to dig in a little bit more to the expanding, exploding value, size, influence of stock exchanges. So, for instance, if you look at the total market capitalization of U.S. companies that are publicly listed that you can buy stock in, and market capitalization means if you add up all the value of all the different shares of stock of all these companies, this is what the total value is. So in 1998, the value of all the stocks in the United States amounted to about $13.4 trillion. So huge amount of money, obviously. But at the end of March of this year, the total value of all the stocks stood at $49.1 trillion. An enormous increase, not just over this long arc of history, right, from the first stock market in the Netherlands in the early 1600s, but just in the last couple decades. I mean, what were some of the factors driving that growth? The most important one was the weakness and the crashes of capitalism. Let me explain. I mentioned a few moments ago that the system crashes every four to seven years. 
Let's take a look at the United States over the last 20 years, the time when the increase in the value of shares was what you just told us. Over that time, we had the dot-com crash of the stock market in the spring of 2000. The next time we had a crash, we called it the subprime mortgage crash. It happened in 2008. And the third one we call now the COVID-19 crash that happened in 2020. So roughly 20 years, three crashes right on schedule, one every seven years on average. When that happens, when the stock market tanks, the tremendous anxiety spreads through the entire capitalist system. Front page on the Wall Street Journal, front page on the New York Times, and so on. Are we headed for another depression? After all, the Great Depression of the 30s began with the stock market collapse of October 1929, and so on and the government is terrified, and the business community is terrified. One of the things that gets done, and the one that was really used over the last 20 years, was to call upon the central bank in the United States, which we call the Federal Reserve, to step in and to prevent a depression by offsetting the collapsing stock market. And how does the Federal Reserve do that? Two things. Number one, it injects into the economy, which it has the legal right and obligation to do, money, fresh new money. Some of it literally by printing more pieces of paper, you know, $5 bills and $100 bills and all of that. And also electronically by creating money by the stroke of a computer button. And the second thing the Federal Reserve is also charged to do is to manipulate, to control interest rates. And then what happened, and most of people listening to this program have noticed it, is that interest rates were brought down to near zero, where they've been now for years with no end in sight. And why was this done? The hope was that bringing interest rates to zero would get capitalists going and borrowing more money because it's so cheap, which capitalists have done. And likewise, pumping money into the economy was backed by the hope that with more money circulating, people would be spending more of it, buying goods and services, and putting people back to work, and therefore offsetting the tendency to a depression that was provoked by the collapsing stock market. But here's what happened, which, by the way, surprises no one who works in this industry, even though the media tend to act as though they're surprised. What happened was that the money and the low interest rates did not stimulate the production of more goods and services as at least officially folks had hoped. They knew better, but they said that, and so let's take them for the moment at their word. It didn't happen. And we all know, or we should, why it didn't happen. And the answer is, over the last 40 years, there's been a 
enormous redistribution of wealth in the United States. Every statistic shows it. We have redistributed wealth from the bottom and from the middle to the top. We have concentrated wealth in the hands of the Jeffrey Bezoses, the Elon Musks, the Warren Buffetts, the Bill Gates, those people, the billionaires, and so on. So the mass of people don't have the wealth they once did, and therefore they're not buying. Yeah, in the 80s and 90s of the last century, they did buy, even into this century, but not with money they earned because they weren't getting any, but with money they borrowed. That's right. We all became dependent on our credit cards. We borrowed for our home. We borrowed for our car. We borrowed for our daily expenses through the credit card. And then over the last 25 years, we added college debt, school debt. We are the most indebted working class the world has ever seen. But that means there isn't the money anymore. People can't borrow anymore. They can't pay for the debts they have, and their earnings are going nowhere. So all that money pumped in by the Federal Reserve, all the interest rates being dropped virtually to zero, didn't have the effect of offsetting the depression. It stayed. Inequality stayed, actually got worse. Where did all the money go? Answer, right back into the stock market. Who borrowed at low interest rates? People who used the money, you guessed it, to buy stocks in the stock market. And we had there precisely the kind of inflation that is normally going to happen if you suddenly drop interest rates to next to nothing and boost the quantity of money. Only this was a inflation, not in the realm of goods and services that we all use, but only in the stock market. And that's why the prices of stocks zoomed in the way your statistic summarizes. That's where all the money went. That's where all the borrowing went. The economy kept declining. The rate of real growth of output of goods and services became very limp these last 20 years, on average around 2%. By comparison, the People's Republic of China had an average growth rate over the last 20 years between 6 and 9%. It's not even close. So that's why the stock market boomed, because we allowed the threat of a depression when we had three serious crashes in the last 20 years to be handled by what we call monetary policy, by people who in fact know better, but understood that by pumping up the money supply and dropping the interest rates, they would at least stop the stock market from its crash and maybe that's the best they could do to prevent a more general crash. And indeed, a few of them congratulate themselves that by boosting the stock market, they may not have changed the basic inequality of the United States. They didn't. They made it worse. They may not have rebuilt the American economy. They did nothing of the sort. But they did prevent a collapse by giving an enormous boost to the stock market. 
which was the greatest possible news to the top 10% of people in America who own 80% of the shares. But the top 10% are precisely the people who need this help the least. And the mass of those who don't have shares needed help the most. And this system did the obvious wrong thing. Professor Wolf, we just have a couple minutes left. I just wanted to ask you about stock buybacks because it's right. it's such a ridiculous, ludicrous <laughs> trick that the people who are at the very tip top of the capitalist system have come up with to enrich themselves. What is a stock buyback? When a company carries out a stock buyback, who is that for? Who is that benefiting? What is it? Good. It's a wonderful example of why you should never trust the people who tell you to trust them because they do things in a business-like way. Here's what business-like actually means. Years ago, corporate executives, the people who run the corporations, were told that, look, you're not doing a good job. And we suspect it's because you don't care if the company does real well as long as you get your salary. So here's what we're going to do to make you work better. We're going to make a part of your salary be shares in the company. So if the company doesn't do well, well, you're not going to do well. And if you want to do well, you're going to make the company do well and boost its shares. This was all hyped up to let everybody know how our corporate leaders have skin in the game. They are worried and are really going to take care of it. Uh-huh. Now watch. The corporate executives now understood that how much they could take home, which is usually in the millions if you're in a big American corporation, depends on how the shares are doing. Okay, then the corporate executives made the following decision. We're going to take a sizable chunk of our profits that we get from making software programs or hamburgers or whatever the company was doing. We're going to take sizable share of our profits, and then we're going to go into the stock market where we are going to buy shares in our own company. And when we do that, we push the price up because suddenly there's this new demand for the shares that isn't from some investor out there, but from the company itself. And what it does is push up the shares. And why would they do that? because their salaries and their pay packages are dependent on the price of the shares. And this way, they can use the profits they've earned to boost their own salaries. And notice, they didn't use that money that they used for the buybacks, buying back their own shares. They didn't use that money to hire more people. They didn't make any jobs. They didn't use that money to grow the company. They didn't use that money to invest in R&D to invent new technologies or altogether new products. They didn't do all kinds of things that would be socially useful. They took care of themselves in the process, adding yet another booster to share prices. But the beneficiaries are likely, again, the top 10% which of course includes these corporate executives who are the ones making the decision to buy back their shares. 
All right, we're going to have to leave it right there. We were joined by Richard Wolf. He is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work and the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. You're listening to The Socialist Program. Check us out if you support our work, if you enjoy listening to the show. Join our Patreon community at patreon.com slash the socialist program. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. <laughs>